Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have one of the greatest friends of the Primal Blueprint, Rob Wolf. He is a New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. The Paleo Solution has helped hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions around the world, lose weight by eating a low-carb diet. And also Wired to Eat, Rob shares a more customized way of eating that could be the key to permanent weight loss and better health for you. Both books are amazing. Today, we're going to talk about the latest book, Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat, Why Well-Raised Meat is Good for You and Good for the Planet. Welcome back, Rob. Huge honor to be here. Well, listen, uh, I love all that you do, and I'm really glad it went into this direction because we keep hearing how bad meat is for the environment and how we need to eat less of it and how it's the problem. And my gosh, now we have Impossible Burgers which are just, uh, <laughs> I mean, we could talk about that they're in a minute. Impossible. <laughs> they're, they are impossible. Um, wh- before we get into the, the details of regenerative farming and why this is important, how we look at how our meat is raised, why did you go down this path for, your, for this book? What was inspiring um, you? Career suicide. Like, I'm ready to be done <laughs> with everything. And so I figured, why not tackle something that incenses Everybody on both sides of the political spectrum, it brings up social justice issues and guaranteed we won't get it right for somebody. So really, no, no. Um, The real answer, although there is some truth to that, like we've we've been kind of looking through like hands over our face waiting for all this stuff to play out. But er, early in this this scene, um, Diana and I, who's my my co-author and really the the spark plug that, that made this thing happen. But. We noticed that people would improve their life with, you know, kind of paleo and primal ancestral eating. And they would kind of look up and look around and they were like, what do I do next? And this um, this what do I do next thing is kind of interesting because people would frequently look to kind of like food quality and food sourcing and kind of environmental questions and stuff like that. You know, discussions around climate change and what have you. And I think that that's very well placed, like in that kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It it makes sense. Like if you're sick and potentially dying, like you've got to take care of your own stuff first um, before thinking about what to do next. But then when people were faced with the what to do next, like the singular answer was you need to eat less meat. The meat you eat needs to be absolutely like. 1000% 1000% pastured, uh, massaged by the Dalai Lama, you know, just these really remarkably high standards. And um, folks that had, you know, they, they will have gone through uh, remarkable health changes would would reach out to us. And I know you guys have received this. And it's like, hey, my life is better than it's ever been. But there was just this movie and it says that I'm going to get cancer and my penis is going to fall <laughs> off. Oh, and also in that process, I'm going to destroy the planet. And so, you know, health is clearly important. Some thoughts around the ethical treatment of the world around us, including the animals we share this planet with is a completely reasonable, you know, topic and discussion to have. And some discussions around, uh, uh, you know, big, big picture environmental topics are totally reasonable to have, but it's, 
it's been fascinating. It's been a wall of of sound that uh, sings one tune and one tune only. And the fascinating thing with that is that that tune really is uh, it, it's this industrial row crop food system, which is what really planet of the vegans would be because you can't do regenerative farming at scale w- without animal inputs, you know, and, and, uh, the way that the current food system functions is heavily reliant on fossil fuel inputs and it damages the topsoil, it poisons our waterways. And clearly it's not really providing food for humans. It provides feed for humans and, and, uh, Almost nowhere is there a problem of calories at this point, but there's there there are some places where politics or distribution are still causing uh, uh, hunger. But I, I believe it was six years ago the world transitioned for, to more people dying from chronic degenerative diseases, diseases of relative affluence, um, than what they were they were start uh, dying from starvation, malnutrition, and and infectious disease. So it, it's really on the one hand, it's almost kind of like we, we need to do like a, you know, a victory hands over our head. Wow. We really, um, we really turned the boat around in some ways, but then we also need to, to realize that this industrial food system is, is killing us and it, and it is causing damage to the, to the world, to the environment. I, I take a little bit more of a cynical view of it all. Um, we're not going to destroy the planet. The planet's been hit by comets and uh, meteors and super volcanoes. Um, what we're talking about is saving And apparently our some aliens have probed some people and everything's cool. <laughs> I, I wasn't there for that. I'm, I'm kind of feeling left out, you know. Um, but Yeah. So I, I, you know, even that notion of like saving the planet, I find pretty arrogant and disconnected. We're not saving the planet. We might save ourselves. If, if humanity is still here a thousand years from now, it's going to be because we, we figured out some ways of stewarding ourselves in the world around us that works a lot more with nature than against nature. And this is part of the, the irony of this very vegan centric food system which is that it, it can't not function without, you know, massive energy inputs, massive uh, synthetic chemical inputs. So, you know, these are all the and things that And it can exist we, without killing animals, too. I mean, that's the one thing people forget. Uh, lots of large animals are shot to protect the soy fields. I mean, not given a second thought by some of these people, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, Diana Rogers does a, a great job of unpacking that where she makes the case that, Let's start with, you know, say like a reasonably natural environment and then they're going to convert it into soy. Actually, let's use like the Amazon rainforest as an example, because this is where a lot of this stuff goes down. So you've got rainforest that gets clear cut and cleared to to make way. And people will say for beef, but cattle are brought through that area to clean up the remnants of the of the, you know, the former jungle but this stuff is never left as beef production. It is converted into soy production. And that is its end state within this industrial food system. People will say that the Amazon is being cut down to raise beef. They do run cattle through those, uh, you know, clear cut areas. But that's not what stays there. What stays there is um, soybeans. And you removed all of the animals, all of the insects, all of the birds, all of the reptiles, you've altered the soil microbiota. Like 
you know, everything that you could imagine has been changed to install that, that, uh, soybean, you know, a, a patented IP protected, um, crop. And then to your point, anything that tries to infiltrate that is killed the herbicides, pesticides, uh, rifles, et cetera. And generally none of that gets used as food. Uh, it, it might make its way back into the soil at, at some point, but that's a, a rather wasteful use of any type of life. So, yeah, I mean, this this notion that a vegan diet is a bloodless diet is is one of the greatest um, fallacies. And I think it's really at at root, you know, cause to some of the some of the energy around this, some of the emotionality around it, because people are just really uncomfortable with the notion of death, that we're going to live and we're going to die and that we're a part of this cycle. And I, I think that people try to avoid their own mortality. And, and, and I will say, I think that there is some decent uh, good intentions here. Like there have been examples of industrial animal husbandry, which are pretty nasty that don't treat the animals respectfully. And nobody's advocating for that, but, um, it's easy to forget all the animals that get, you know, put through the combine and, and gassed and, and, uh, uh, you know, sprayed in the process of maintaining these, these row crops. Well, there, I mean, we could, there's a whole, I interviewed a guy named Tovar Cerulli. He wrote a book called The Mindful Carnivore, A Vegetarian's mm. Hunt for Sustenance. And what he really realized, he had this sense of like, he was a, you know, raw organic vegan for many years until he realized he just couldn't get out of this life cycle, right? It's very elitist to think you can just pull yourself out of this prey, like this, this whole entire life cycle we had. And one of the examples that he had was he read an article by a woman who, titled an article called On Being Prey. And she was a vegetarian who was like attacked by an alligator. <laughs> I think it just kind mm. of, it, it just kind of shows you, it's like, if we didn't have, you know, cement houses and brick buildings, we'd be maybe dead every night from a mountain lion attack. <laughs> like, you right. know, I mean, that's right. very possible. But again, yes, this whole idea of the fact that we can remove ourselves from something that's inherently in us with animals all together in this world is a very interesting thing to try to remove yourself from. And it seems strange to me. Um, let's talk about kill systems for a second before we get into like the earth and how regenerative farming works. But a lot of, uh, you know, I spoke with a proselytizing famous vegan recently, John Venus, and he, after years of being vegan, he had a child, he started to do research. It was the only time he started to do non-vegan research, okay? And that's when he found out all this stuff, and he thought, oh my God, I've been completely brainwashed, etc. And um, he told me that they all they all just thought that all of the meat was the factory farming cows, like all of the bad stuff. They didn't even know like a lot of them don't even know that there is such a thing as regenerative farming. And that's really what did it for him in terms of like, oh my gosh, I can actually do this ethically for how I feel. So I'm not sure what the statistics are now, but I was under the impression that about 50% of our cattle ranches in the U.S. are Temple Grandin design, meaning the, the nice kill system. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is an interesting thing that, uh, so one one piece of that is even conventionally raised meat spends 70% plus of its life on grass. So that's, that's kind of a thing. And then when you look at the way that, that animals are, are killed with, with beef cattle, there's some very specific standards and, and treatment protocols 
And this is both for humane reasons and also for the quality of the food. If the animal is really stressed out, it actually ends up ruining the meat. So there's there's really no win there. And ironically, there's virtually no standards around, say, like chicken and fish. Like you can do absolutely heinous stuff to to those animals. And we've just by enormous amounts increase the amount of chicken and pork in particular that, that we produce and consume, um, which cannot really be pastured. Like some people kind of do it, but it plays a very secondary role to sheep and cattle and, and goats and whatnot. But yeah, there are some very high tight standards in the way that, um, uh, cattle in particular are, are slaughtered in the United States and, uh, most westernized places in the world. Um, and then ironically, the, the, uh, standards around things like fish and chicken are, are really pretty horrific by comparison. Like there really are no kind of like ethic standards in, in the slaughter that occurs. There are very, very little by comparison. So then let me ask you this. So for the people that, cause I do know some people that are pescatarians who kind of on that note feel like it's 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 worse or more harm to the larger animals versus the fish. But now I guess it turns out there's more of a risk of effery with how you would treat one of theirs. So their, their, their philosophy may not be right in that ethical arena. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and again, that may be just a, a little bit of an artifact of just a lack of oversight in that space. But it also kind of reflects that this is ironically a bit of hierarchical thinking. Like cows are cute. They almost kind of look like a, a big brown eyed dog or something like mm-hmm. that. Whereas like chickens are chickens like they're. And if you've seen a salmon, cute, they're just garbage. They look terrible. <laughs> yeah, they, it, it's a fish, you know, and I mean, mean. You, can have, yeah. you, you can have some sense of uh, empathy for it, I guess, to some degree. But it's just not that that same thing. So we're uh, ironically rather speciest in the way that we focus on the, the treatment of our food. I uh, watched, had the opportunity in Kauai to go to a grass-fed meat company, and they had a Temple Grandin design kill system, and I went and watched this happen. They, It was wonderful. They had zero clue up until the second that bullet was in their head that anything was happening. No stress mm-hmm. whatsoever. It was lovely to see. And for the audience out there, if you don't know who Temple Grandin is, G-R-A-N-D-I-N, she is the most famous autistic person in the world and revolutionized our cattle um, systems. And there's a great movie with Claire Danes playing her called Temple Grandin. I suggest everyone watch it. It's fascinating how she came up with this system. The other part of it, too, was that, you know, their processing may be I think it, they told me it was like 10 animals per hour versus a thousand, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just this other idea that they, they're like, I know who's cutting my meat. I know they're not going to come in when they're sick. Like there's, it just seemed so lovely, so wonderful, so clean. So, so gosh, there was just no stress on the animals part. When we talk, let's, let's go back to just why, why is beef framed as the most environmentally destructive and least healthy? Like, give me the rundown on that. I mean, I know that's a lot, but yeah, people need to know, is. like, and what I mean, is that, that? That really is the reason. I don't know I'll do a particularly good job of answering your question. It's a really good question. But the reason why it's an important question and also the reason why uh, we gave the book the title that we did, Sacred Cow, is there are these seemingly unassailable truths that are just, you know, thrown at us. And, uh, I think we've all seen the infographics where like 
a cup of broccoli is supposed to have more protein than, you know, three ounce sirloin steak or something like that, which is patently <laughs> false. Like it, it is false on Mars, on Jupiter. Like there's no planet that that is true one and it's easily debunked, but it just gets said enough and then it becomes kind of this, this truth. And there's, I don't know exactly how this happened, but the, the irony is that over the last 30 years we've eaten, we as Americans, we, we eat less beef, we eat much more chicken. And again, ironically, and, and pork and chicken and pork have, have been industrialized and, and really ramped up. And the irony here is that ruminant animals that grow on grass, I wouldn't say that it's it's a free lunch, but man, it's close. It's like photosynthesis, grasslands, food. If you rotate them properly, the grasslands get better. There's even more biodiversity. There's more animals. Um, there's more birds. You know, all this good stuff happens. Whereas the way that poultry and pork are raised, it's closer to like food as intellectual property, like IP, you know, chickens, if you don't call them by five weeks, they will die from organ failure. Like they've been so genetically modified that they, they couldn't live a normal chicken life cycle at this point. And so it is so fascinating why cows have taken the, uh, the brunt of all of these, these insults, you know, uh, red meat is supposed to be disproportionately unhealthy. And when you really get in and look at it, it's actually twice as nutrient dense per calorie as, as chicken or pork, like some types of shellfish are right, right in there are, are very tight competitors, but, um, you know, it's supposed to be disproportionately unhealthy. That's not true. Uh, it's supposed to be disproportionately impactful to the environment. People talk about things like methane and greenhouse gas emissions, which the, the scary thing there is if we start demonizing greenhouse gas emissions from biological sources, biogenic sources, then we discover things like, like shellfish produce enormous amounts of greenhouse gases. Termites produce just ungodly amounts of methane. And in the final equation, it doesn't really matter because that stuff is part of a cycle. And this is something that just makes, makes me and other people really crazy because we're kind of lumping this whole greenhouse gas emission story all together. And it's a very different thing to consider fossil fuels that have been underground for hundreds of millions of years. And then they get liberated as, as, you know, coal or oil or natural gas or what have you. And we're putting those, those, uh, inputs into the atmosphere. But the irony there is that the one tool that likely looks the, the best in being able to deal with that is properly managed grasslands and, and large grazing animals. We've shown that we have a net carbon sink when we, when we grow properly raise animals on grass, we pull more carbon out of the atmosphere than it is released via that process. And they, they normalize, they, they normalize all this into carbon units. So whether it's methane released or carbon dioxide released, that math has been taken care of. They, they normalize those. What things. about the rough math between the industrial cow feedlot on the side of the five freeway in California looks like a nuclear waste dump, you know, it's muddy, mm -hmm. it's nasty. They're all mooing, they're hating it. They're being fed grains. Is that methane released more than pasture raised cows? No, ironically, pasture produces more methane. And this is one of the things where we end up in this circular crazy land deal where um, 
It takes a little longer to raise animals on grass. In theory, they release more methane. But this is another, this is where like having a simplistic 101 level understanding of this stuff, which all of our policymakers are doing this. People at the World Health Organization are are making these really simplistic uh, decisions around incomplete information on systems that are just wildly complex. But a couple of things happen in a properly managed uh, grassland environment. One of them is that the methanotrophic bacteria, the, the bacteria that eat methane, increase dramatically. And this is something that we're just starting to wrap, get our arms around. Just because methane gets released at the, the snout of an animal doesn't necessarily mean that it makes its way fully into the environment. There, again, there are these methanotrophic bacteria that inhabit the soil, and they convert the methane into carbon dioxide, use it as, a, as a, an energy source. But even above and beyond that, it, it, again, in this properly managed system, we're actually pulling more of this carbon out of the environment than, than what we're releasing. And, you know, this is something that um, people in the regenerative ag space hate uh, Diana and I for because it, although we are not fans of the current industrial food system, there's kind of a reality we don't know the exact number, but a decent amount of the current production that, that is fed into, say, like the CAFO system, folks regeneratively raise those cattle on grass. They rotate them properly. They do, are great stewards of the land. But this circles back around to the, the slaughter topic. Because of the limited access to slaughter, it makes more sense for these people to then sell these animals to be finished at a feedlot. So this is where we have an input into the CAFO system that is arguably very, very good. It's animals raised on grass. It's doing regenerative work. It's building topsoil. It's sequestering carbon. And then it gets handed off for the, the last 25 to 30 percent of its life to be finished on grains. And it's not just grains. It's uh, the, the spent uh, waste materials from ethanol production. Um, it, it's putting animals on... Uh, silage like uh, uh, corn and, and wheat fields after they've been harvested. And so there's a whole mix of stuff there. And the the real um, bottleneck with this whole story in many regards is before about World War II, there were a couple of hundred thousand small scale slaughter facilities in the United States. Now there's about 150 enormous slaughter facilities and animals will be raised thousands of miles away, trucked into a central processing place, slaughtered, possibly finished, slaughtered there or finished and then moved somewhere else for slaughter. Then they get redistributed. And when you buy meat from this, uh, this kind of industrial system, like a, a package of ground beef may have, a, uh, may have inputs from as many as 600 different cows. And this is one of the big problems with, uh, say like, um, disease tracking. Like if there was a mistake in the butchering process and some E. coli gets into the mix, if we're dealing with one animal at a time, then we have one mistake. Whereas one mistake on one animal mixed into a batch of tens of thousands of pounds of meat ends up, you know, causing problems with the, the, the whole batch. So man, there's just, uh, layers and layers and layers of this stuff where it kind of goes sideways when we, when we tackle that industrial story. So give us, a. Uh... Give us a picture of what it looks like uh, with regenerative farming. 
Like, for example, it's like, okay, so for 10 days, we have them on this patch, then we move them over here. What are the things that are done? Give us a little play-by-play of how this all works out. Yeah, sure. And uh, uh, in general, they're, they're being moved much more rapidly than every 10 days. It may be daily. It may be sometimes twice daily. It depends a little bit on the available grass. Um, Joel Salatin is a great example of this uh, where he's in Virginia. And so it's a pretty moist environment and they grow grass like crazy there. But it's it's interesting. He's able to grow about four to five times more or, or run four to five times more cattle on his property than his neighbors immediately adjacent to him because he uses these these regenerative practices. But the the animals are are stewarded around with a portable electric fencing that just kind of keeps them bunched up. And that sounds bad, but these are herd animals. In their natural environment, they tend to stick together in a herd because historically they've had predator pressure, wolves and tigers and lions and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff like that. And since we've removed the bulk of the predator pressure, when people put cattle out on, on pasture and just kind of let them go, they'll eat some grass here, they'll eat some grass there. They tend to pick the main things that they like the most. And then when that stuff starts to regrow, they go back and eat it again. And this is where overgrazing and, and damage to the, the grasslands themselves happen. But in this mob grazing format, using portable electric fencing, let's say some animals are, are finished on the patch of ground that they're on currently. And a section gets opened up and there's fresh grass like immediately adjacent to them. And these animals just bum rush to get into this, this new patch of grass. And they're all competing against each other to get the grass that they need. But everything gets eaten. And, and as they move along, they pee and they poo. And this is part of the reason why they move, because they're peeing and pooing. They're, they're smart enough to not, not eat their own effluent. And so they move into this new area. They kind of mow everything down pretty uniformly. And then a new section is opened up. And then they move into that section. And the stuff that happens secondary and tertiary to this, then a chicken tractor will be brought in where there it's a portable chicken coop and the chickens pick through the poo and they eat the bugs. Um, there's dung beetles doing all their good dung beetle stuff. Uh, uh, native birds and insects tend to be in super high numbers in these types of situations. And then usually on the sides of an operation like this, if there's woodland and, and you know, like oak trees and, and environment like that, then pastured pork can be raised because they need some shade. They need some air, some areas to kind of waller in the in the mud and they like to root around for for different types of food. So this is the way that you could have a pretty biodynamic operation going on. And Joel Salatin has made the case that uh, his animals have a great life and then they have one kind of bad day, which is kind of what you alluded to with the, the thing in, in <laughs> Hawaii, you know, it's, it's, um, and even then that, that it, it, there's a, there's a really kind of jaw dropping. Um, I think it's a Instagram account and also a, a YouTube account called nature is metal and it shows animals eating other animals in the wild. And it is horrible. I mean, it is, you know, like yeah, a, no one's a worried about the cortisol level of like, a, you know, an elk when the lion is <laughs> right. Like they're just it is, is eating it's, its innards out while it's still alive, yeah. you know, and um, and this is some of the stuff like the, the vegan folks will say, well, oh. 
why do you have to eat the animals if you're using them on on this regenerative process? And it, it, it's kind of a fair question, but you're faced with two problems. It, it, unless you practice really tight population control, these animals are going to overpopulate an area because we have no there's no predator pressure on them. So they will outstrip the environment that can support them. And, you know, these people are usually railing on about population control of all kinds so that that should resonate with them. You need some type of predator interaction to keep the numbers within manageable levels. But then the other thing is that these animals at some point get old. And this is something that uh, we got to interview a couple of formerly vegan farmers like they, they were vegan. They wanted to start a farm. They started a farm. They tried to run it 100 percent veganic and it just didn't work. They, they yeah, very quickly, <laughs> yeah, it never works. And, and very quickly they realize, oh, we have to have animals on here, but we're just not going to eat the animals. Okay. So it, it, we're going to let murder happen. We're just not going to murder. <laughs> we're just not going to do it. We're going to yeah. let killing happen by proxy. <laughs> well, and, and that would happen, you know, like coyotes would get on these animals or, or mountain lions. And that was kind of horrific. And then like, well, do we kill the coyotes and the mountain lions? Oh man, that's a moral conundrum. But then these animals would ultimately get sick or they would get old or they would get injured. And they were faced with this problem, almost like end of life human problems, where do we euthanize the animal now? And they would reach out to their vegan community. What do we do about this? And they're like, you just have to let it die. And they're like, it's suffering. And then some people would say, well, Maybe you should put it down. And then other people would say, well, you're a horrible person if you do. And this was even before like the the horrible reactionary council uh, cancel culture that we live in today. But it was an enormous moral quagmire for these people. And what I'm, most I'm sorry, of them, I'm, la- I'm laughing a bit because I recently had a discussion with the bunnies are out of control in my, I live in the mountains and it's the spring. Mm. I mean, they're just, it's roadkill. They're just all over the place. And there's a lot of dead ones. Cause again, just roadkill, it happens. <laughs> and so, so I'm with a friend about this, a situation where like, you know, you hit something accidentally and you see it's still alive and then you've got to go like run Finish it, it over. <laughs> I, I laugh cause it's just like dark physical comedy. You know, it's just so bad, but I would be more inclined to do that actually. I probably would. I'd probably rerun it over again to put it out of its misery. I think it, I would. It, it, it's a, it, you know, we, it, it's funny on the one hand in that dark humor thing, which is literally the only type of humor that I, I get, but it's also, <laughs> it's a legitimate moral quandary. It is. Like if, if you grazed an animal and it's like, okay, is it going to make it to, it's like our, our dog got a hold of an armadillo in our backyard and uh, Dutch is like a 110 pound Rhodesian Ridgeback and, Generally, dogs cannot really do much of anything to an armadillo, but oh my God, a Dutch hurt it really bad. I called a vet, had the vet come out. That's like, it's not going to work. Like we, we can't, he's hurt too bad. So I put it down because I had to choose. There were already buzzards standing on the fences around. Why it. There, didn't it was, you pay 20 grand to get that vet fix that armadillo rough? <laughs> I asked him, I'm like, is there, it, I asked him, I'm like, is there any price that could bring this thing back? And he's like, it's been largely eviscerated. Like okay. this is, right. this is done. Like it, it's just done. It just shows you how incredibly tough these guys are. Like you and I would have been dead hours ago with similar injuries. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Cause I, I was, I was like, I'll, I'll spend some money to save this little guy. I don't know. I would put 20 grand into it, but you know, <laughs> was, uh, he bucks, unfortunately bucks. <laughs> wandered into our yard and I, I try to shore up our fences to keep, 
animals out because Dutch has killed a fox, a raccoon, a possum, and now an armadillo. And so I, I feel bad for the little little buggers, but That's I, I had a choice cycle, there. That's the life cycle, isn't it? That's the life cycle. And I had a choice there to let this poor little guy bake in the sun, have flies picking at him, or I could shoot him. And so I shot him. And it was tough. It was an, an enjoyable thing. I really wish that he hadn't wandered into our yard, but... That was kind of the moral quandary there. And it, it is interesting that um, we, one of these stories around these these uh, vegan farmers like uh, that, that started raising animals and ultimately started eating animals. Apparently, the folks that invested in their operation are still largely vegan. Um, they've grudgingly allowed these people to continue their operation like they're eating meat and selling meat and all that stuff. But uh, uh, we were partway through interviewing them for both the book and the film. And then they, they just went dark on us and they're like, we can't talk to you anymore because their funding was going to be cut. If they continued telling the story of, of basically rediscovering the cycle of life. And, and so this is another one of these things that is, I, on the one hand, I kind of get the good intention, but also at some point it starts feeling like dealing with children, uh, you know, where it's like, this is just kind of one of the hard features of life that things live and things die. And we do reasonably have a moral responsibility to treat things as, as well as we can. We shouldn't go around like torturing things or anything like that. But there's also just these weird, tough moral decisions that have to be made around this. And the, it, you've already alluded to this, but there's there have been legit scientific studies that look at the total amount of death that occurs in a row crop food system versus this kind of regenerative model. And the regenerative model kills far fewer animals and it builds topsoil and it sequesters carbon and it improves water retention. And none of those things happen in the, the row crop food system. We, we damage all of those things worse. Right. So a vegan diet could destroy more life than sustainable farming. That's that's the conclusion there. You know, I feel it's it feels funny for me to ask you the following question because I mean I fully believe in this question. But so why are meat and animal fats essential for our bodies? You know the 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 cheesy answer is because we co-evolved to, to eat them. Like we, mm -hmm. we are who we are because that was like a, a staple of our, of our diet. It's kind of like, why are fruits good for a frugivorous monkey? You know, it's a, why, why is cellulose good for a termite? It's like, well, it, it evolved to eat that stuff. And we have an interesting mix. Like I, I appreciate the carnivore crowd. I think that there's some interesting things to be learned from there, but I also, um, I don't think some fruit's going to kill us here and there. A uh, little berry, a mel little melon. I, I think we're made of tougher stuff than that. Uh, but when we look at the, the nutrients that are disproportionately available in meat, uh, heme iron, zinc, um, we get some omega three fats, but not an enormous amount of omega three fats from, from, you know, bovine, uh, muscle meat. There's an enormous amount in the, the brain and other kind of neurological features. And it's a, it's a really non-trivial potential dietary source, but it, I guess it, you could look at it, kind of two different perspectives and arrive at the, the same place. When we look at people in developing countries and observe the diets that they have, which are very starch based, you know, like, uh, uh, plantains or, or yuca or, or rice or corn or something is very monochromatic, uh, very starch based. 
and we look at the problems that they experience nutritionally, it doesn't mean we can absorb it. Um, the, the plants are really pretty, pretty damn good at holding onto it. And there are things like soaking and sprouting and fermenting of, of grains and nuts and whatnot. And it definitely improves the nutritional profile, but you're just not going to magic. You're not going to pull a magic rabbit out of the hat and get adequate protein. You're not going to pull a rabbit out of the hat and get elongated omega-3 fats, which some people are pretty good at uh, taking things like um, uh, flax and, and converting it into EPA and DHA. But most people aren't. And, and virtually everyone loses that capacity as they age. So, you know, you've got the protein piece. You've got this, this uh, nutritional density piece. And then in this modern hyperpalatable food environment – so it arguably like the key distinguisher of whether or not people overeat or not is if they get adequate protein. And it doesn't really matter if you eat more on the carby side or the low carb side. If you get adequate protein, you tend to just not overeat in general. But if we're deficient in protein, then we tend to eat anything that's not nailed down. And this is why people on ketogenic diets can get chubby from them because they, they get spun into this really low protein version of this stuff. This tends to also be why, you know, you see some skinny vegans, but they're kind of doughy. They're not really carrying a lot of muscle mass. If they are someone like John Venus, then they were doing tons of, you know, vegetable protein concentrates, which are the, you know, I, and all that that says to me is like, Oh, Meat's really important because you either need to, you know, the processing involved with converting a field of peas into pea protein is remarkable. It's a huge amount of energy. It's not sustainable, but somehow it's held up as being more beneficial. But it's, uh, yeah, I know that's a, a long rambly answer, but the the reason why meat is so valuable is is arguably because we co-evolved with it. And when you look at the the nutritional density, the satiety, like it, it really is just this linchpin um, molecule or, or nutrient that we need to, to focus on. It's really the, the main nutritional input that the brain and the body monitors to, to make sure we get enough of that because most protein-dense foods, whether we're talking about grazing animals heading towards clover or we're talking about omnivore-type critters you know, uh, leaning towards more protein-dense foods – if one gets adequate protein, you generally get enough other nutrition because protein-dense foods are nutritionally dense. One of the interesting takeaways from the John Venus episode as well is that a lot of the proselytizing vegans, their platform is basically like, hey, everybody can make this choice, right? Like a lion can't make the choice, but we can as humans make this choice and every human can survive and do well and thrive on a vegan diet. And what really stumped him is when he was coaching some people and they were the people that were the carnivore profile. They couldn't eat plant matter. <laughs> they, they just couldn't do it. And he was going, well, hold on a minute. I guess not everybody can. And that blows our argument out. You know, well, I'm, and, I'm and hey, in, in, in this time of social justice topics and equality mm -hmm. and stuff like that, let's dig into that a little bit. Who is able to eschew the most nutrient-dense food on the planet. Mainly white, mainly wealthy, vegan-centric people who have a moral superiority so profound that they're going to tell people in the developing world, you are terrible 
for eating meat. Such you are destroying the environment. This is one of the things like Diana did such a great job in researching the book and film, but there are tens of millions of women around the world who legally cannot own title to land. It's not in their, it just doesn't work, but they can own livestock. And that is the sole source of income, social status, nutrition for their families. And the, the fascinating thing is there, there's been real push out of the World Health Organization, things like the Eat Lancet uh, article and whatnot, suggesting that both for health and environmental reasons, we should reduce our, our uh, uh, meat or animal product consumption. And the, uh, we've had pushback from the developed world scientific commu- community, uh, two, two points of pushback. One is that it really isn't going to change the, the climate change story at all. Um, if we completely removed grazing animals from our food system entirely, it would change greenhouse gas emissions by 2.8%. Like it's a, it's a rounding error. But the, the critiques of the Eat Lancet piece from Western perspective is that they recognize that people will both develop more nutrient deficiencies and they will eat more food. Because you, this is that protein leverage hypothesis. If you don't eat enough protein, then you, you continue eating more food. So we'll worsen all of the current metabolic disease problems that we have in the developed world. When we go to the developing world, there have only been a few studies done looking at this. But they, they looked at, at children who were living in a, a very you know, marginalized environment and they, they uh, – normalized the calories, but then they provided one group a meat supplement, one group a dairy supplement, and another group just an additional calorie supplement. And the meat group outperformed the other two groups by a mile. Their their cognitive abilities were better. Their scholastic scores were better. Their physical stature, the number of colds they got were all far better. And so when, when people say anybody could make the choice this is really interesting. It's elitist. Not, it's very it elitist. It is stunningly elitist. Mm-hmm. It is stunningly elitist. And it's, it, it's so interesting because it is suggesting that people who have been supporting themselves on traditional food ways for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, they're being told that these food ways are evil and that they're destroying the planet, which is patently false. And they're being told to abandon these ways of self-sufficiency so they can become dependent on the industrial row crop effluent coming out of the United States and Europe. Because that is the only other option. These people live in environments where you can't raise crops, as these, these people are suggesting. The only thing they can do is raise goats or sheep or camels or cattle. That is what grows in that area. More than two-thirds of the world's a uh, uh, landmass is mainly amenable as being grasslands. And the main thing you do in that environment is raise grazing animals and all the other peripheral stuff that you can kind of do with that. And some of it can be cropped, but, but not that much. It's really fascinating. Uh, gosh, I feel like I would keep you here for a couple hours. Uh, it just, uh, well, I, w- one side note, just as a, you personally, I, Forget what it was. I know you're paleo, obviously, but wasn't it for you like lectins and beans that it's a killer? Didn't you have something for you like a food group that you're like, I can't touch that food group? Or it I kills definitely you. have a, a celiac. So ah, mom, okay, that's what I okay. mom had had celiac. I have celiac. Um, it's it's funny. Like legumes were kind of interesting. Like carb tolerance wise, I did okay with them. Like I didn't get super wacky highs and lows with blood sugar, but, um, it would make my joints hurt. 
you know, like my, my feet hurt. It felt like I had gout or something. It was really odd. Okay. So that I forgot, I wasn't sure if you had been like super diagnosed as that. Um, what, so that's, that's just tangent, but getting back to this, what are some of the more that you haven't already mentioned, like some fascinating tidbits or a story or a statistic or something you learned in the process of writing this book that you'd really like to impart on our audience that maybe hasn't come up yet? Oh man. Um, so when we sat down to write this book, we, we, uh, I, I, the experience of writing a book, like I, I find that um, outline, 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 like just keep outlining and make it bullet points and outline and bullet points. And if if somebody can look at your bullet pointed outline and make sense of it, like really have a, a an idea of what the story flow is and they have absolutely no idea what the subject matter is, then you're kind of in a good position to start writing. And we just had all of these assumptions, you know, and and uh cows are good at sequestering carbon via, you know, properly managed grasslands. Like we had something like that. And then we got in and we actually tried to disprove all of this stuff. Like we, we took the opposite side and we started each one of these bullet points from the opposite perspective and then worked our way in. And one of the things, ironically, that, and this is why, um, I, I, I think it was on a different um, podcast. I, I joked that, uh, you know, I was shooting for career suicide, um, you know, <laughs> by even writing this this uh, book. But we get a lot of pushback from folks in the regenerative ag scene because there's this topic. Where one of the line items that we had was pastured meat is nutritionally superior to conventional meat. And when we got in and really looked at the data, all of the data. And when we talk about nutrition, we're talking about vitamins, minerals, essential amino acids, essential fatty acids. That's really what nutrition is when you get right down to it. There are some other things like flavanols and all, all that type of stuff that may or may not be healthy to human health, but they're not vital to human health. And when we looked at that, there was hardly any difference between pastured meat and grass-fed meat. Even in their fat even in their fat. So and, that was something we once thought. Yes. It's and, now and, not true. Well, but and, and but I would say this though. So, but then, then, okay. So I'll play devil's advocate and go, okay, just let's take away climate and land for a second. Then what's wrong with me eating the ribeye and the fat off the ribeye? And why, why should I buy grass fed? I mean, again, forget all the reasons I know why, you know, the climate reasons, all the, but, but then there technically is no difference. Mm -hmm. Very, very little difference. Um, Pete, there is a little bit more omega-3s in pastured meat versus conventional meat. But if we start a pissing match around omega-3s, a, a three-ounce piece of salmon has more omega-3 fat than eight pounds of pastured meat. Okay. So it's a right. joke. Like right. it, that, That's not it, where it's, you it's go like to a, get. It's a point you shouldn't even be arguing. Right? No, no, no. Um, there is a case to be made around from a health perspective around bioaccumulation, things like atrazine and glyphosate. Uh, and, you know, oddly enough or ironically enough, the most toxic thing I can discern that ends up in our meat are uh, mold infested grains that contain aflatoxin. And you can get a, a dose big enough from either dairy or meat if it's consumed this uh, uh, aflatoxin poisoned grains. They can make you sick or kill you like it, it doesn't happen a lot in the developed world, but in the developing world where they occasionally put grain inputs into their their food. Um, if you don't handle those grains exactly right, they are a, a beautiful growth medium for mold. And uh, 
So bioaccumulation is a is a thing that should be different in a, a pastured scenario versus a a uh, a more conventional scenario. But one of the big takeaways that I have for this is if you can afford to underwrite the development and expansion of this pastured regenerative system, by all means do it. Like like take that bullet a little bit, support your local farmers, make that stuff grow and expand. But we can't make this so elitist that a family of four living at the margins, working their asses off, trying to do good. And these parents know they've read Mark's book, they maybe read my book, and they know that the best thing they could do for their children from an academic advantage, a physical advantage is to feed them well, which means significant animal product input. We cannot so vilify the conventional system that these people are then scared into beans and rice because beans and rice aren't the solution there. And this is where like there are these meat elitists that will say grass fed or nothing. And again, it's (laughs) ironic. It's like, who are you talking about? Are you talking about the inner city family that like in New York, 70 percent of the kids in the New York school system are low income. Ten percent of them are homeless. And the meal that they get at school is oftentimes the only meal that they get all day. And this is where these meatless Monday campaigns are really dangerous. And the insidious, the, the, the insidious like skinny end of the wedge coming into this story is people will just say less meat or better meat. And it's like, eh, maybe, you know, and how about this is just where, meat. <laughs> how about just meat? And that was one of the ironic takeaways that I had when I was trying to square all this stuff off. As an aside, Diana and I hired an independent PhD to research the topic of uh, the nutrient quality of grass-fed versus grain-fed meat, we just said, we want to know what you think of this. And we didn't show him any of our data, and he arrived at exactly the same data. Like, we tortured that information 10 ways from Sunday trying to figure out a way of saying that that the nutritional profile was superior. And it's just, it's just not that big of a difference. Well, that's honestly really good news for people that feel pressured financially, that somehow it's not healthy if they're eating non-grass-fed stuff. I mean, I know plenty of carnivores and people that are like, I don't care, meat is meat. And, and now we're okay. I see what you're saying, though, about what they're eating and some residual, yep. but that you're saying like the mineral content, the nutritional content in and of itself is not different. Yeah. And, and if you wanted to put on your, your kind of environmentally focused hat and say, well, what is a better choice here? Uh, again, past, or, uh, conventional meat spends 70 plus percent of its life on grass. Poultry and pork, 100 percent of their life is spent arguably in a pretty miserable confinement state, but it's also fed exclusively grains and soybeans. Uh, which the sustainability profile of that sucks. And so if you are look, if you're on a budget, everybody's on a budget, but you know, if you're on a tight budget, if you've got a family and you're trying to figure out how to, how to do what's best for everybody, conventionally raised meat is going to be okay. Like that, that and, and focus on, on beef and lamb and goat. If you could, you could find that um, this is one of the ironies. Leonardo DiCaprio has this film before the flood. And he goes through and he just hammers on animal husbandry, mainly focusing on cattle. And then he makes this case that at, at the end of the movie, that if you want to do your part, eat less beef, eat more chicken, which is exactly, exactly the, opposite. the opposite of what you should do. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. So when I was interviewing Lauren Cordain, 
your buddy, mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. said that the super centurions in our country, oddly enough, they're from Iowa because of the pork consumption. So oh, I guess if we're looking for pork, we should be looking for pasture-raised options is what you're saying for pork. Chicken's very Probably, tough yeah. to get pastured. I mean, pasture-raised eggs, one thing, but it's hard. You got to yep. buy a whole chicken from a farm, you know, if you're going to do yeah. that. So you can't go to a Ralph's or a store and just go get pastured chicken, but you can possibly uh, get pastured, pasture-raised pork. And I forget what it was. Um, what's the thing starting with the Q that's involved in the pork fat? At quinine or something that's like malaria medication or something. Oh, but oh is it is it the CoQ10 like the ubiquinone? Or? There you go. Yeah, yeah. I okay. think it might be that. Okay. I think it might have been okay. that or the high levels of that. And he was saying that that might have contributed to it. Um, very very interesting. So, all right, let's let's close out here by. Well, first of all, you you guys give practical guidance on how to support sustainable farms. You have a 30-day challenge to help people transition to a healthy, conscientious conscientious diet. So so that's part of the book. Um, What do you do for meat? Where do you get your meat? What are some companies that you like um, when you're choosing this option, if you can, you know, if you're not traveling and you can't determine whether or not you're going to get regenerative farm meat? Yeah, yeah. So locally here, there are several. I, I live in the hill country of Texas now. We're in New Brunfels, and there's an outfit called Pure Pastures, and they do um, lamb, beef, pork, and chickens. We do uh, lamb and pork and a little bit of beef from them, but then we're trying to spread the love around. These are all people that go to our jujitsu school, too. So we're trying to like <laughs> spread a little bit of the love around. So um, there's another outfit called Augustus Ranch, and that's who we've, we've been getting uh, the bulk of our, our beef from. Nice. And I'm not sure. I think it's still active, but I think if people go to Eat Wild dot org or dot com mm-hmm. that's a sort of a yep. index of resources for to find healthy meats yeah and uh at sacredcow.info we have i honestly i think an even more comprehensive index than what eat Great. wild has at, at this point and you know this is something too that um almost no matter where you live unless it's a, a super urban area but even in that case if you get out a little bit there are people raising animals and sometimes it's hunter percent grass fed sometimes it's not but it, it, it's local the animals are typically well well cared for it's supporting your local economy this is another piece that we kind of dig into in the book and i know we're getting along in the tooth here but the um the economic story on this is really interesting like there's all these you know uh, horror pieces about artificial intelligence is going to supplant all of human work and what are we going to do for work and even though ranchers and farmers are portrayed as these dumb buffoons, doing regenerative farming, regenerative ranching is a morning, noon, and night creative challenge. It is creative problem solving constantly. And it is well understood within artificial intelligence circles that the last thing that we ever crack, if we ever crack it, is creating human-like creativity. And so one could argue that this is an, an area that is going to be kind of, you know, employment protected mm-hmm. longer than virtually anything else. Like it's understood that doctoring and lawyering, because it's so formularic, there are computer programs that do a better job than doctors and lawyers currently. They just don't really know what to do about it because it would be like a peasant uprising if we, we shifted to fully <laughs> – you know, autonomous, um, work there, but these, these really open-ended creative processes 
do not lend themselves well to automation. They need human capital to come in and work. And it's really interesting. Starting a regenerative um, operation can be done reasonably inexpensively. Like you can lease land. You don't need to own the land. Sometimes you can even get like a, a like a dollar a year governmental lease. Like if you're a minority or a female or something like that, like you can get these crazy deals and then you need some animals and then you need a little bit of infrastructure to be able to manage that stuff. But depending on the situation, like ten, twenty thousand dollars, you could be in doing something like this. Now it's gonna be a very modest operation, but to do Anything in the the standard industrial model, you need several million or tens of millions of dollars to even get going. Like setting up a dairy is a $30 million proposition. And Mm -hmm. so this just excludes so many people from being, you know, having the potential access to this employment. And, you know, you could imagine that if we had millions of small scale farmers around the world instead of these you know, four or five consolidated entities. And I don't know exactly how that happens. I don't know how you break all this stuff up, but one of the ways that you do make it happen is by supporting these processes to the best of your ability so that people have the impetus to get in, buy these products, support the local uh, food economy and, and make this stuff happen. Yeah, I uh, so far I've been uh, getting stuff from and really do like rep provisions and they're into regenerative farming and there's other like offshoots, right? Like what's your next book? Like Sacred Butterfly, right? (laughs) I mean, there's all these, like you said, there's all these life cycles going on that it's so supportive. This is, I also, uh, I don't know. I see a lot of problems with a robot teaching jujitsu. <laughs> I see some we'll potential see. We'll problems see. I may, with I, that. I may, I may have some some job security on that for a while. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What else is going on in your world? I know we're in the you know we're still in the middle of a kind of a pandemic and not really free to roam. Uh, we're not being pastured right now. But uh, what's what are you excited about other than this wonderful book you guys are putting out there? You know, we're just getting to know these these folks in this uh, New Brunfels community. I, I managed to rope a good friend of mine, Michael Hines, into moving his family from South Korea to open a jiu-jitsu school. And so we've just been, you know, hammer and tongs trying to build that uh, in the middle of a, a pandemic. And, you know, we're very lucky. We uh, we already worked from home. We were already homeschooling. So the the main bugger about this is we were really fired up to start getting to know people. And then the pandemic hit and we're like, dude, we've been on house arrest for like a year. Like (laughs) I'm ready to start hanging out with some folks. But, you know, it's um, we've been very minimally. I'm I'm very, very grateful for the 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 relative preparation that we had. You know, I'll just mention that as an aside. Um, The end of Sacred Cow where we're like, what you should do above and beyond just the food, it's almost kind of like a prepper's guide. It's like, have some cash on hand, have some extra food, have some water, don't carry any debt. And it it was ironic because the book was going into printing just as COVID was really spinning up. And Diana shot me like this, this bullet pointed list. And, you know, we turned this thing in nine months ago. And so in this age of COVID and all the things that people realized were, were really important, we were totally on point with that. Like Absolutely. If, if, if people had been, you know, doing any of that stuff, then there were that f- many fewer headaches that they had to deal with. And I, I will mention that just a little bit of a an orientation towards that resiliency side in your own life. Like I knew that something squirrely like this could happen. I, I, uh, I kind of joked with my wife, we've been 
trucking this like doomsday bunker rig around with us for like 10 years. And I'm like, finally, I look like a smart guy, you know, because it, it just, um, it didn't really affect us that much. Like we, we were always topped off on and we're lucky to be in the position to do it, but we're always topped off on food. I've always kept an eye on like alternate energy sources for the home and, you, you know, uh, having some medical supplies on hand and stuff like that. And it doesn't take a ton of time to, you know, just a couple hours a month to just kind of survey that stuff and keep an eye on it. But then when this went down, I didn't have a single moment of like, uh, panic. I knew what I needed to do and I knew where we were at. And if there were any gaps that needed to be filled, I knew exactly where to go. Whereas a lot of people spent days, possibly weeks in panic. Like mm -hmm. they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what, you know, what to, to think. And, um, whenever people are faced with a, a big challenge like that, like being thrust into a, a anxiety filled panicked situation just makes everything far, far worse. So I, I do think that there's some real value um, to the book, you know, just in this, this age where there's so much unknown, there's social unrest, there's, uh, you know, the threat of a, a ping pong effect on this, this COVID and all that type of stuff. But it, so it's, it's fascinating in that regard. And honestly, it makes me feel even better about doing the book. It's like, okay, we were really on, on point with this thing. Absolutely. And listen, you have a relationship with a good farm or an outfit like Repper, you know, any of these places you're going locally, then when, you know, there's industrial shortages and things like that, it's not necessarily going to hit you. Yeah. yeah, it didn't. And I guess that that's another takeaway for folks is that if you there are enough smaller scale operators that if you build a relationship with them now, if things get a little squirrely, you'll be at the top of their list. And well, they'll, that's they'll do right. Everything that even happened with Butcher Box and not necessarily yeah. like they are a farm, but, you know, with what they do and some pretty clean mm -hmm. stuff. But but they were immediately like a, was it two weeks into the pandemic. It was like a wait list. Yep. Yeah. So it's like, get on it now, people, <laughs> um, for, for all of these uh, outfits. Thank you so much, Rob. Now, Sacred Cow is on Amazon in all forms. And then where can we I know are you and your wife still doing the Q&As instead of the podcast? Yep. Yep. Still doing uh, healthy rebellion Q and A's. I do a few salty talks, which are, are interviews, but I don't do a ton of those. Those are pretty limited. And then, you know, all the information about the book and film are available over at sacredcow.info. When is the film out? Film should be out somewhere around September, hopefully. And so where soon. will we be able to see it? Will it be we're on one of the Netflix platforms or whatever? We're not entirely sure yet. Um, okay. Netflix said that they wanted to make it a Netflix original, and we got literally right to the 11th hour on that, and then somebody pulled the the plug, which was mm. interesting because... Probably um, vegan. <laughs> just well, there was almost certainly something there because the uh, Hollywood has been shut down for close to a year. Like, they don't have any shows to put up like they are absolutely starving for material. And this is a really well done documentary, but apparently it is so controversial to suggest that animals are not just healthy, but they might be a solution to our global, you know, um, ills uh, was, was so onerous that these guys kind of bailed on, on it at the last minute. And so we're investigating a few other outlets as uh, potentials here, but um Long and short of it, we will have some way of checking it out soon. And it will more than likely at some point end up on like a, a Netflix or an Amazon Prime or something. But there's going to be something probably prior to that. That's great. Can't wait to see it. And then as far as all things Rob Wolf go, is it just robbwolf.com? That's it. And then over at the uh, Healthy Rebellion, join.thehealthyrebellion.com. 
All right, great. Thank you so much for joining us again. And thank you for your work. This book is so necessary. It's concise. It's clear. It's it's the argument that was needed for this thank, time. Thank you. Thanks for all the support. You guys gave us a lot of love on the launch. So thank you. All right. We'll see you. We'll see you next time. And everyone else, we'll see you next week. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the Primal Path and want to help others live primally too, then visit PrimalHealthCoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit PrimalHealthCoach.com today to learn more.